0: Good morning, Generations Church. Welcome back to worship. We're in 1 Samuel. You just heard a passage uh, that we're in. Hopefully, you're still there. We're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 4. Uh, It's the same passage we just read together, Uh, but I want to begin with kind of an idea that in 1 and 2 Samuel, as we see the rise and the fall of God's people, it opens with this snapshot, if you will, of the world that they live in. And oftentimes, as we get to see The world they live in is a lot like the world we live in. What we find out is that human beings, especially people of faith, have struggled with similar things throughout history. And so I'm going to begin with a main idea for you. God returns to his people. After a long silence, God returns to his people who are living in disobedience. We have to ask ourselves today if we are not guilty of the same thing. So 1 Samuel 4, let's go back to verse 1. We're going to pick up there. It says, "...and the word of Samuel came to all Israel." Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And this is the verse, the only verse in chapter 4 we didn't read earlier. We started with verse 2, and here's why. It begins in verse 1, it says this, Now Samuel was the prophet of God, and it says that Samuel, the word of God, came to Samuel, and he took it to all of Israel. But then in the very next sentence, it says this, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And what we can find here is that it it almost flows like God is speaking to Samuel and Samuel is leading them, but the Bible wasn't written exactly that way. And the numbers that we look at, like 1 Samuel, the fact that it's chapter 4, verse 1, that didn't come around until about 800 years ago, thousands of years after this took place. And you get it, obviously the church is saying it's easier than saying go to the 10th scroll, it's about the middle of the page on the left, right, that'd be hard to do. So we gave it chapters and numbers, but when we put both of these into verse 1, it feels like God is speaking to Samuel, Samuel's telling the people what to do, and they're going to do it, but it's not. It's a transition. Now, Eli, who's not been hearing God, now God is speaking to Samuel, and it's going to button up the end of Eli's life. Now, simultaneously, Israel goes out to war with the Philistines, but God didn't send them to that war. And so I wanted to begin there, I wanted to keep that out of the liturgy reading that we just did, and I wanted to say, listen, when, when God begins to speak to Samuel, this is a snapshot of the world that Samuel inherits, the people of God, the world he lives in, and the condition of the culture, the people of God, that he is going to help lead. So verse 2, it says, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle had spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So I point out verse 1 saying God is starting to speak to Samuel, but it has nothing to do with this war because then they go to war and the Philistines defeat them, right? So the, the people of Israel, the people of God, they go out to this war that God didn't lead them into with a people group called the Philistines, who is one of their kind of enemies throughout the Bible, if you will. And so they go out there and they begin to lose. So here's what they do. Instead of regrouping, instead of asking, okay, are we supposed to be here? What God is here? How did we arrive at this battle that we're losing in that God isn't protecting us from? Instead of asking those questions, what happens is, they decide we're gonna go grab the holiest thing that we own, the Ark of the Covenant, right? The people of God have got this Ark of the Covenant. If you remember from our last teaching series in Exodus, God said, I want you to build this, I want you to place it in the holiest of all places, behind the curtain, in the temple, behind where any people can go, and that's where my presence is gonna be. But God has long since lifted his presence away from the people right? We see little glimpses of this when it says that God hadn't spoken to any of the prophets in quite a, quite a while. And now God is raising up a new prophet because Eli and his sons are corrupt and wicked. And so we talked about that last week. And so Israel goes into battle not led by God. And instead of backing up when they get beat and figuring out, okay, maybe we're doing the wrong thing, instead of that, they're like, we're going to go grab our lucky rabbit's foot, the ark of God, right? We're going to go grab this thing, and because we bring it in, God is going to all of a sudden make us win, right? I want to put this on the screen. This is, and this is something we need to ask ourselves about. Instead of asking God for direction, Israel drags God into their plans and expects his blessing. Can the same thing be said of the church today? Do we, too... Treat God like a genie in a bottle, right? Well, we need something right now, so we rub the lamp, out pops the genie, and we ask, hey, God, please fix this situation, or please do this thing I want. Or are we taking that challenge that we talked about last week? Are we learning how to hear God, let God lead us? Or again, do we treat God like that genie in a bottle? Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim? And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, they were there at the ark of the covenant of God. Now, remember, these are the corrupt sons of the of the of the, the priest Eli, and these are the this is the family that last week God told us, "Listen, I'm going to take out your family, and I'm going to remove your family from ministry." Verse five it says, "As soon as the ark of the covenant, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into camp." All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So, woohoo! hoo they're like, yay, there, here it is, the ark is here. It's this magic talisman, it's this good luck thing. It's not that God is there, it's we've got this lucky thing, right? And because we went and got it and we brought it here, now God has to let us win, right? Of course, now, when we bring this into the battle, of course, God has to now give us that victory, Verse 6, it says, and when the Philistines heard the noise shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And when they said, woe to us for nothing like this has ever happened before. So the Philistines hear this shouting and they hear this, this celebration and they see that they've brought something an inanimate object, right? They see this, this thing that they've made and, and the Ark of the Covenant of God was functionally a box with poles covered in gold and then with cherubim, angels on the top of it fixed in on the mercy seat where once a year this atonement sacrifice would be made and God's presence rested. But really, without, without God's presence, it's a really fancy box, right? Without the God who makes it special, it's just another handmade thing, But the Philistines, they worship idols that they carve with their hands. We're going to see Dagon in a minute. We're going to see these things. In fact, Dagon is like this half fish, half guy, kind of weird thing, almost like a merman, if that's still a real thing, right? And so they worship this carved image. So when they see this made thing, they assume it's an idol, a god of its own. And so they hear the people shouting and they become concerned. Verse 8 it says, Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. I want you to hear this. This comes up twice today. They hear the shouting. They look. They see. And their concern is this. Listen, these are the gods. Now, plural, granted, they get it wrong. These are the gods that gave these people the victory over the Egyptians. Consider that for a minute. Egypt at the time, back when this happened, was the most prominent nation on the planet. Probably still is as we get into this story. Maybe not. They're on the decline, still a big, powerful nation. But at their peak, the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, delivered Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Now, that has spread that a God did that, or that God did it, but it's mistranslated into other cultures as the God or God's plural of the Hebrews did that. Now I want you to hear this, so if the Philistines knew that God delivered Israel overcoming Egypt, if they did that, why why don't the Philistines worship that God, right? Why don't they worship, why don't they submit to the God they're afraid of? Well, same idea, Israel knows more about God, and yet Israel isn't doing what that God who delivered them out of slavery, isn't. they're not even doing what that God calls them to, so why would outsiders, right? And before we get all judgy about the people that we're reading about, why don't we? Like, we know God delivered them from Egypt. We know then so many things since then. We know it's God who has impacted our lives. Why don't we then do the things that God calls us to? We find ourselves in one, of a, one chain, one link in a chain, then a long history of humanity who knows about the God who is great, the God who delivered Israel, the God who rescued me from who I was and changed my life, the God who created the universe. And yet, even knowing that, we still fall short in worshiping that God. So here we get the Philistines, these non-followers of God who know the story about the God who delivered Israel. And then they see this Ark of the Covenant come into camp And they worry that they're going to be overcome by that God, right? Verse 9, it says this, Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Clearly, they were not politically correct and didn't have women in their army. But take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you, and be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, if you remember, that was the promise that God made to Samuel, the first time he speaks to Samuel about Eli, I'm going to kill your family because of their corruption. And Eli you too will die and your family will no longer be in ministry because you allowed their, con- their corruption. You were complicit in their sin by not stopping them. And so God says, and here's how you know it is me and not just them dying. You'll know that it's my hand. He says, they'll both die in the same day. Um, check, right? Both died same day, same thing. God took them, right? Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line. And he came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting by his seat on the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Because they'd taken the ark of God. There's Eli worried about the ark, right? And when the man came into the city, he told the news. All the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the cry, he said, what is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came to Eli. So again, Eli's the priest. He is a broken, kind of older, jaded unwilling to engage his corrupt son's priest. Still a priest. And so and you can see inside of Eli, as the ark goes out, he begins to be concerned for the ark. Now, it's interesting, he's not concerned for the people, the 30,000 that just died. He's concerned, hey, they just took our good luck charm, right? They took our, our magic box that God used to sit over, right? And so he has this concern. Verse 15, it says, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so they could not see. He's old, he's gone blind. Verse 16, and there's a man, and the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from the battle today, and he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been also a great defeat among the people. Your t- two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, not his sons, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. So here's what we've learned about 1 Samuel. So far, he's not very politically correct because he only allows men to go out and fight. He tells them to be men and then he tells us about an old fat priest who's old and dies. So this is amazing, this story, right? And then this priest, Eli, really what he's concerned about is the Ark of the Covenant. Not God, not the people, not the problem that they're disobedient, just the Ark, like this thing that we own, that we keep, that is so valuable. And here's the challenge. I'm not going to go any further than this today, but in this season we're in right now, the building is something we don't get to use, right? And either we're choosing to live stream or, uh, or you've been live streaming all along for health reasons or whatever, and there's this sense sometimes about the building. Other churches are struggling with this. This is a church, a Christian church thing, right? That the building becomes this really, and what is the building? It's a box. It's a a decorated box. We, We decorated the back. We put lights in it, put a stage in it, but it's a box. At the end of the day, it's walls. Sometimes we get pretty squirrely about the building, and I think coronavirus has stretched all of us beyond that. Like, well, Are we still the church without our building? And of course, the answer is yes, that we are the people of God, which is the church. But sometimes we get a little idolatrous about the building. That's Eli right now about the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 19, it says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. And then her pains come upon her at about the time of her death, so she dies, the woman attending her said to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son.' But she did not answer or pay attention." Now, if you remember again, last week, God's promise, here's what God says to Samuel. The first time he speaks to Samuel, he gets Samuel's attention, and then he tells him he's displacing Eli the priest because of his sinful sons. And what God says, remember, I I said God kind of gets all mob boss and says, listen, I'm going to take out everybody in the family except for one person, and that one person is going to watch as I prosper Israel apart from this family. And so this one person is going to be left. Now, even the daughter-in-law has died, but there's a son. This son, during his life, will watch the rise of Israel. And what he will know is that my family used to be a part of leading this, that we used to speak on behalf of God, but no longer, we don't any longer, because my dad was corrupt. And my grandfather didn't step up and do anything. And so he will have to watch from the sidelines, knowing that his family used to be a part of this, right? And that was our challenge last week. Like, how, how do we as Christians, and me as a leader, you, it, whatever, as Christians, how do we contribute and grow and change and shift and, and help the church repent, right? And it's not about telling others what they're doing wrong. It's about us changing, repenting, turning towards God, turning away from the things that we do that are not what God has called us to do, and turning towards the things God has called us to do that we don't do. And so there's this, there's this sense of this here that there's a moment where all of a sudden now this family is excluded from what God is about to do. And what God is about to do is the best thing God has done for these people ever. And this family is going to miss it. And that was our challenge last week, right? Verse 21, it says, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured And because her father-in-law and her husband had died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So I'm gonna put this on the screen for you. Ichabod, the child's name means the glory of the Lord has departed. And it's a summary of Israel's condition. Can the same thing be said of the church today? Has the glory of the church departed? That would be my challenge. When I say the church here, really what I truly mean is the American church. Now, the church on the other side of the world in Africa, or the church in Asia, the church in South America, those are those are very different settings, and it would be overly broad to include them. But I want us to ask ourselves, what about the church in America? What about Christianity in America? Has the best of Christianity gone by, and has maybe God lifted his hand off of the church in America? Now, the church Theologically, the church, the people of God will prevail. They will live until Jesus returns. The people of God will continue. As Jesus tells Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But that doesn't mean God has to use us. That doesn't mean God has to use us even in America, right? And that is what I ask. And we went through this big political season. We're in this big pandemic season, right? Which the season's take longer and longer. But as we watch Christians in it, my concern is that we look a lot more like the people that God wasn't speaking to than the people that God does speak to. Chapter 5, I'm going to read through 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 5 and 6. We're going to go really fast through these, uh, almost just reading through them, but they're a big piece of the story, and I want to cover 4 and 7, so bear with me a little bit. Verse 1, it says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, the word Ebenezer is going to keep coming up, the city that they're in, we're going to talk about it all the way at the end of the chapter. Verse 2, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back on his place. They set it before their God that they have carved, their idol. Literally, they set the ark of the covenant before it, and Dagon falls down on his face overnight. So they have to pick their idol back up and set him on his feet. That's hilarious. Verse 4, But when they rose early in the morning, the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So when Samuel's writing this, that's still true. That this Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, they take it back and they set it up in the temple of a false god, this half-human, half-fish, kind of weird-looking Dagon. So the Ark of the Covenant of God goes and is set before their idol that they've carved out. I don't know if it's out of wood or metal, but whatever they've carved it out of. And so whenever they go in there, they find Dagon has fallen over. Now, you've got to step outside this story just for a minute. And I think back to when we were teaching through Isaiah in 2019, that Isaiah, the prophet of God, by God's word, God directs him to say this, keeps challenging the people, like, how come your gods don't speak to you? Well, because they're deaf and mute, because they're not gods at all. They're carved by your own hands. And we kind of joked about, like, how does somebody take a piece of wood or metal and then the human being carve something and then set it up and worship it? Like, if I made it, I'm better than it, right? I, I don't make something that I worship. But there's this piece of our heart that's so broken that we give our worship to things that is so, from the outside you see how how ridiculous this is, but they literally do this, right? And so when they go in just as a bit of God's humor, their God keeps falling over because it can't stand up because it's not a God, right? It's made out of wood or metal or whatever it is. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for this hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the, God, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So again, standing on the outside is kind of funny. Dagon keeps falling down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the people, out of fear, say, what do we do with the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel? Because he keeps making our God fall down. Now, from the outside, I want to ask, okay, now, why do you want to keep worshiping the thing that can't even stand up? and not worship the God who clearly is real, right? But again, we do just as crazy of things, right? We worship things that make no sense as well. We'll talk about that in a bit. But here's what they do. So they're like, well, let's just get rid of the problem, and that way Dagon can stay on his feet. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant around to Gath. Now Gath is cursed, and tumors are breaking out, and God is exercising kind of a, a curse on them. Verse 10, so they sent the Ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they're afraid of it too, right? Verse 11. Then they sent therefore and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic through the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So another city down, right? First Samuel 6 verse one. "The Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, "What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us what shall we send it to its place? or shall, shall we send it to its place?" And they said, "If you send away the Ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him with a guilt offering." So they're asking the Philistine priests, diviners, wise people. What do we do? Well, don't send it away empty, right? Like, let's send something with it. Verse four. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So you must make image of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off of you and your gods and your land. Again, same question Why not switch your worship over to the God who is clearly stronger? But, again, instead, God's curses of tumors and mice, they'd make gold ones, and they're going to send it back with the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away, and they departed? So remember, my question's from earlier. They even know the story of the destruction of Egypt how God came in and took the firstborn in every household and delivered Israel, a group of slaves, a a large group, a million and a half slaves, and delivered them out of the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. So if you live in Philistines, so if you're a Philistine and you're there and the ark of this God keeps causing plagues on your people and you know that this God has defeated entirely other nations that are bigger than you, I'm not exactly sure why you don't turn and just worship that God. But even the people of Israel don't worship their own God well. And so they don't have a clear witness of that. And so you can just see the world that they live in is all upside down. It's easy to judge them from the outside and go, this looks crazy, but we do the same thing. That's the part. We're guilty of these same things. Verse 7. Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke and the yoke of the cows the, and yoke the cows of the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box on its side figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. And if it goes up this way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. So if you send it out and these cows walk away from their calves and they go back to this other land, then that's truly God. That's what we should do. That's what they're kind of saying here. Then it's he who has done this, who has, not, who has caused this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So we'll know that the mice and the tumors aren't from God if the cows come back. Okay, verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice, and the images of their tumors, And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the only people in the entire story we're reading or the only living creatures in the entire story that actually go and do what they're supposed to do are the cows, right? The Philistines don't. The Israelites are a mess. Eli the priest is now dead. His sons were corrupt. It's not going well for the people of God. Verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beshemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon a great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron. So a quick recap. The cows get it right. All the people are crazy, right? And then the cows bring this Ark of the Covenant back. And what looks like a really good response isn't going to play out well. We'll see that in the next verse. But the people do begin to worship God. They realize, okay, the Ark of the Lord. Now, I want you to imagine this. They... As the Ark of the Lord comes back, here's what you're going. You're out in a field, and you're picking whatever it is you grow, and you're picking grapes or corn or whatever you're doing, right? And all of a sudden, no people, two cows, here comes the Ark of the Covenant all on its own. That had to be a sight, right? Like God is orchestrating this cattle drive here with the Ark of the Covenant. So they come back, they break up the cart, they offer those two cows as a sacrifice, and they begin to worship God. It's really symbolic of what God is doing. God is bringing his presence back to the people. He's coming back. He's returning to his people. The people hasn't spoken to in a long time. The people have been very corrupt, but he is returning. And there's this image of God coming back and engaging with his people. Verse 17, it says, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities, Other Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. There's this stone they keep referring to that's really important. It's this marker of what God is doing. It's important. Verse 19, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So this ark comes back. They offer worship, but then they don't worship the way God has called them to. And actually, several of the men die because they mistreat the ark of the Lord. And so yes, they respond in worship, but they don't worship the way God has called them to. It's this common theme in this book that is coming out of Joshua and Judges that the people do what is right in their own minds. They do what they want to do, thinking, well, I'm going to worship God, but I'm going to do it my way, when really what they're doing is dishonoring God, and God is not having it. God is actually saying no at these moments. All right, 1 Samuel 7. We worked through three full chapters. Now we're in 7. Thank you for staying with me. Here we go. Verse 1. And the men of kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, from, from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of, the, of Israel lamented after the Lord. So here's what happens. They realize they're worshiping wrong, and so they back up. They figure it out. Okay, we need to consecrate, set apart a leader, a priest who will be in charge of the Ark of the Covenant like God commanded through Moses to us, repeated by Joshua. Now, we've got to get back on track. We've got to do this right. or God's going to keep killing people. Like, God is going to keep removing people for false worship, and, and we don't want to do that. And so for 20 years, this one guy who is set apart keeps the Ark of the Covenant God won't move it, God doesn't set it up, God doesn't say go, God says stay 20 years. So here's a snapshot, if you will, of where we are in this story. God's presence was removed for a season, but now God's presence is returning to the people, but it's a slow process just as it was a slow process as God called them to repent and called them to repent, and then finally, he just removed his presence. There's this slow removal of God's hand off the people, right? As he lifts his blessing away, there's also a slow return. And a lot of that is for for the people. are Are the people learning? Are the people doing? If we just kind of bring everything back and then it's just this joyous celebration, they don't realize what this has cost them. Here's a note for you. The church in America, the two great awakenings from 1730 to 1840 were the height of the American church. This was the, the pinnacle of the American Christian church. Today, we are waning and impotent from not having learned the lessons of Israel. We're not, we haven't learned what Scripture has presented us so clearly that, that the people have to stay on track, that the people that God calls, he will lay his blessing out, but that's not a guarantee forever. You, that I will bless you while you're obedient, but when you become disobedient, I'll pull away my blessing. And so the, the Great Awakening, starting in 1730, that, that kind of went through its huge resurgence of the church, especially here in America as we were forming as a nation, and then the Second Great Awakening happening in the next century, were the high points of the Christian, American Christian church. Since then, it seems like we've drifted off track. Today, if we just take a snapshot of the church, if we just look at this church right now in this time, we are so idol, so off track, so, so bought into politics, so divided over issues like the pandemic, so fragmented, so schismed, so idolatrous that it just doesn't even look like the church God created anymore. You see, the gospel message is one of unity. God says, listen, I created you and loved you, but you sinned and ran away. And so I brought Jesus to reconcile you and I, and, and that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, that through Jesus' death, resurrection, and through his life, death, and resurrection, that, that we are brought and, and restored into being God's family, so we become sons and daughters of God. So if you were here and, 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 and you want to be a follower of Jesus, we know that it's because of our sin that we're separated from God, but because of Jesus that our sin can be covered. Right? And as we do that, one of the things Jesus talks so much about is unity, is peace, is submission, is obedience. Right? And today, the church is all about my freedoms and my rights and the Constitution, and, and all those things are amazing and given to us. But you'll never hear Jesus talking about, well, you have a right to do this. No, it's that we are sinful, and we deserve hell. But because if Jesus, were brought back into God and we are worshipful and obedient and submitted to authority, then we deserve nothing except for negative. But because of Christ, we inherit everything that is good. And so the gospel brings us and reconciles us. But that isn't what the church looks like today. Not here in America, not today. Instead, we're arrogant and about ourselves and we have other idols like political parties or our freedoms or ourselves. And we're not just laid down humble before God, 20 years waiting for the Ark of the Covenant, kind of buried in some guy's garage because God said so. In the middle of a pandemic that hasn't even kept us at home for a year, and people are going bananas. And it's hard, don't get me wrong, it's hard. But we're not even unified around Jesus in this moment of struggle. Instead, we're everywhere. All you got to do is jump online a little bit, look on social media, because social media functionally is what your private journal should be and not shared with everybody else. But instead, people just write their private, deepest, ugly, crazy thoughts, and they put them out there, and everybody sees them, and then they all argue about them. Christians doing that, it's ugly. And it reveals the condition of the church, because the church isn't me or this building. It's us, it's collectively who we are as people. And we get, a, we get to look at what the church is and how off track it is because social media is so transparently what our hearts are. So back in this passage, I want you to see this. I want to put up this verse for you. Revelation 3 says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is Jesus speaking to a church at the end of the first century. I know you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Jesus' words to a church are, I know you have a great reputation, but you're dead. Your works are terrible. You're so far off track. Wake up, repent. I believe those are the words for us today, here in America, here at this time. We need to wake up, we need to repent, we need to turn. Then we need to turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's follow Samuel again. Verse three, "'And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, "'If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, "'then put away the foreign gods "'and the Ashtaroth from among you, "'and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, "'and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines.'" listen to this line from samuel now as samuel the prophet begins to speak to the people listen this is the people that are now worshiping god but not just god he says direct your heart to the lord and serve him only and he will deliver you the people of god right now are worshiping false gods in addition to god baals ashtaroth they're worshiping these other false gods and samuel the prophet begins to speak like no It's Jesus and Jesus alone, or it's God, no other, right? You shall have no other gods before me, says the 10 commandments. The American church struggles with idolatry just like them, right? You know, our Philistines is probably the pandemic, that our enemy right now is a pandemic and a virus that we can't seem to wrap our heads around and agree on a strategy towards, right? Our false gods are politicians and political parties. Our false hopes are, Are the atheist microbiologists that they will somehow come up with a vaccine that's gonna fix everything? Rather than we need to figure out what God is calling us to do. And I'm all for science, but science isn't all for us, let's just admit that. And I'm all for voting, but let's just admit, politicians are not all for us. And I'm all for being safe and figuring out what to do with the pandemic. But when will we turn to God? At what point will we say, this won't fix us, they can't fix us, science won't fix us, politics won't fix us, and the, virus is, and, and the virus is killing us, literally. When will the church figure out, this is our Philistine, this is our giant Goliath, and we need faith to fight it, not human strength. When? When will we, the church, do that? Verse 4 it says, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Church, that's the word. We need to put away the team red and the team blue. We need to put away, I trust in this. I trust in science. I trust in humanity. I trust in, me- I, I trust in more than I trust in God. And I'm not suggesting those things aren't good. I want medicine to solve this as well. But where is our faith? Where's our trust? Where's our hope? Is our hope in a vaccine? Or is our hope in Jesus? I know so many Christians just are hoping in a vaccine. I also know others that don't want any part of it, and so Christianity is very divided. It's because our hope needs to be in Jesus. We need to set everything else down. Our faith is what needs to guide us. Verse 5, it says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted. And on that day they said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. He guided, led the people. He judged them there at Mizpah. But don't miss this. They repented. They fasted. They prayed. When is the American church, instead of waiting for this solution or that, going to gather together and fast and pray? Church, we did this once. I think it was April. And I just say this, my, my fault. Why is that not what marks our church? That throughout this pandemic, rise or fall, better or worse, why are we not gathered together fasting and praying more? Why? Because we're waiting and trusting in something else, not in the God who created us. I'm going to close with this passage, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Push pause just for one minute. Last time they went to the war with the Philistines, God wasn't even included. They tried to drag him on later onto the field. Now, we're afraid of this. Now, Samuel, let's seek the Lord. See the difference? Now it's about God. God, what do we do? They worship, they sacrifice, they give. And Samuel was offering the burnt offering. Verse 10 The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Here's that stone. He lifts up this stone. He sets it up as a memorial and calls it Ebenezer. Says, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. They repented. They turned from their idolatry. They turned from trusting in anything other than God. They turned from their political affiliations. They turned from their idols. They turned from their trust and what they could touch and what they could see. And they lifted their eyes up and they began to trust and seek God and they repented of their sin and they began to wait on God. And again, I'm hopeful for medicine. Uh, I'm not super hopeful for politics, but I'm hopeful for medicine. We'll just stay there, right? But... What would it look like if we, the church, a church in America, not just generations, but it has to start somewhere. So it needs to start with us. What if the church in America began to gather and fast and pray, even if that gathering was digital, right? What if we were marked by fasting and prayer? What if the churches started communicating with one another? Like, hey, every Monday or every Friday or whatever, we're going to fast, we're going to pray. Zoom's going to be up, we're going to do this. Maybe, maybe that's the solution to the virus. Maybe God would move on our behalf because God defeats the Philistines here. I'm not saying don't be safe. I'm not saying don't follow the rules. In fact, I'm saying be safe and follow the rules. But where's our hope? Where's our trust? What I've experienced over the last year of this thing before it was crazy and then in the last, whatever, 10 months of it being really bad is I've watched as Christians, because it doesn't matter what the world out there does, it matters what Christians do. I've seen Christians trust in politics. I've seen Christians trust in a constitution. I've seen Christians trust in medicine. I've seen Christians say they trust in science. I've seen Christians trust in a lot of things, including myself. What I see is a lack of Christians trusting in Christ alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We say we love you every week. We close, we talk to you, we pray. We show up to church, we sing songs about you, but Jesus, what we really love oftentimes is Republicans and Democrats. What we really love is our freedom. What we really hang on to is our fear. What we do, Jesus, is different than what we say. Forgive me, forgive us. Help us to lay down our idols and trust you. You are the way out of the virus. I don't know what that means. I don't know how you'll do it. I don't know what, but I know if your church could come together, if the church in America could come together, if the church in the world could come together and seek you, I know this would be over. I fear that it'll not happen because we're so idolatrous and so divided that we will look more like Israel without the ark. Help us. Jesus. Let us be your people, not anything else. It's in your name we pray, amen.